Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking about the latest COVID-19 variants spreading around the world with vaccinologist Dr. Melvin Sanikas. Dr. Sanikas is a physician scientist with over 10 years of international experience in clinical research and development, regulatory and medical affairs, and program management of vaccine discovery and development in Asia Pacific, Europe, Latin America, and Africa. He is a global medical director for Takeda's Vaccine Business Unit. He is also a digital health expert for the World Health Organization and a TED educator. For full transparency, he is not representing Takeda in this interview, which has been recorded on the 26th of January, 2021. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Dr. Melvin Senecas now. Melvin Sanikas, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, hello, everyone. Hi, Tara. Thank you for having me on Conversations with Data. Um, so just tell us a bit about yourself and your career as a vaccinologist, you know, and also a bit about maybe your work with TED. Like, what attracted you to this field in the first place? So I'm, I'm a physician. I have an MD and I did um, further studies on infectious diseases and public health and vaccinology and clinical development. Uh, I have been active in science communication since 2016. And this is something that I've been doing in a personal capacity. And with more and more anti-science misinformation in social media, as well as encouragement of uh, other scientists who are already actively speaking up for science, like um, Peter Hodes, I got myself a Twitter account four years ago and, and started to simplify scientific news and started engaging the scientific community. TED is, as we know, is dedicated to amplifying ideas to everyone around the world. And TED-Ed specifically creates lessons, animations in a particular topic and questions to check whether the viewers learn something after. But if you watch it on YouTube, you just see the video. And as a TED educator, I have developed lessons on influenza, meningitis, tuberculosis, and I've also helped with some other newer lessons in coronavirus release at the beginning of the pandemic. And these videos have actually had in total over 10 million views and counting. And I'm very happy that more people are still watching them and learning new things. Great. Um, so talk to us about these new variants that we're seeing in Brazil, the UK, South Africa, and funnily enough, I think even yesterday I read something about one in California. Mm. Like maybe you could start with like the basics, like what is a variant and how do these viruses replicate? So the appearance of variants is not at all surprising because viruses mutate. That's, that's what they do. When a virus particle enters a host cell, it converts the cell into a viral factory, churning out thousands of new virus particles in a relatively short period of time. And because replication is not perfect, there will be some changes, some mutations. And many of these mutants may be different genetically from the original virus, but not exhibit any biological important differences. Others can be inferior, which means that mutations made these viruses less able to replicate. In a few cases, however, the mutations may confirm what's called a, a selective advantage. 
This means that a particular mutant might be able to infect a person more readily or replicate more inside the body or even just leave a person's body more easily. And these types of changes make a virus more likely to survive and reproduce, which can be worrying in, in the case of more dangerous viruses. So in general, coronaviruses mutate less rapidly than, than the flu, for example, or HIV. Um, but SARS-CoV-2 has been mutating throughout the, the pandemic. In fact, early in the pandemic, I think it was around April or May last year, one particular variant referred to as the D614G quickly replaced the initial SARS-CoV-2 strain throughout the world. And this um, contains a change in the virus's spike protein that allows uh, the virus to be more easily transmitted from host to host. And because of this biological difference, the variant spread rapidly. But I think we have to note here that if you are wearing masks properly and, and the right kind of mask, washing your hands regularly and keeping distance from people, this, this variant cannot infect you. Right. And do we actually know like how dangerous these new variants are? Like, for instance, Boris Johnson from the UK, the UK prime minister, he continually comes on and says, or at least several times he's come on and given a press conference and said, you know, there's data to suggest that is more deadly and spreading more quickly. Now, I did a bit of research and I was looking on the CDC website for the United States and that was, it was basically saying, no, that isn't necessarily the case. You know, these variants are not causing more illness or an increased risk of death. Um, and then I've heard other people say, oh, it's kind of like you're playing a football game and you switch in, you know, a substitute. And then you have someone who maybe maybe they're not going to score more goals, but they've got more energy than the last one. And I, I felt like, is that a better analogy than just coming out and saying, you know, it is definitely more deadly? That's actually a great analogy. <laughs> and I believe the information that Boris has is more up to date because CDC's website was updated, I think, middle of January, and Boris came out with this new um, information at the press conference last week, right? So that was more recent. Um, there will be lots of mutations coming up for sure. This is because the more the virus is allowed to circulate in the population, the more mutations it will accumulate. And, and again, you know, we should not be surprised to hear about all these new variants being detected in other parts of the world. But the take home message here is that we are in a race at the moment and we should step up our efforts to mass vaccinate and protect the population before additional variants may evolve and emerge and make the, the vaccines less effective than, than, than they are. Um, and also, I just wonder if we could talk a little bit about sequencing a virus. Like, why is that important? And what does that involve? And, and do vaccinologists do this kind of surveillance on these viruses? So, so a, a genome is an organism's genetic material, right? It's a, essentially, it's the instruction manual, which contains all the information needed to make and maintain the virus. And virus genome sequencing is essential in understanding the spread and evolution of SARS-CoV-2. So how is this done? Um, 
I'm not involved in a genomic sequencing lab at the moment. And the last time I did this was several years ago and for a different pathogen. But, but basically someone swabs the patient's nose and we pull genomic material out of the sample using a little handheld DNA sequencer, um, which used to be the same size of same size as an iPhone, but, but the ones used nowadays are much smaller than a phone and connects directly to a, to a laptop over USB. Um, the data analysis software then does the sequencing of the genome and uploads the sequences directly into an international databases. And these databases can be accessed by people in, in the viral genomics community. So scientists anywhere in the world working on viral genomics can have access to the widest array of data as possible. And by looking at the genomic sequence of the virus, um, we can have an idea where their version of the virus came from. We can also understand how the virus is spreading. And because the genomic sequence looks a little different as the virus mutates and spreads in different geographic areas, we can even tell um, if this virus is you know, from Europe or is this from, from Wuhan or from, from Singapore, for example. Fascinating. Um, and I'm curious, why aren't more countries sequencing COVID-19? Um, is it normal to identify it by a region? So I, I think it's really more of a question of resources. Um, should mm -hmm. they increase genomic sequencing capacity or buy more PPEs or buy more vaccines? And, and this is because genomic sequencing is considerably more expensive than a COVID diagnostic test, for example. And it's not feasible to isolate every positive COVID-19 case and screen for the new variant. Um, it's important for researchers to work with local clinical epidemiologists to build a, a monitoring strategy. And if all countries with high transmission do genome sequencing or do more genome sequencing than what they are doing at the moment, I'm sure each country will be able to identify a, a, a new variant. And what do these new variants mean for the vaccine? Changes in the spike protein of, of, of the virus could potentially alter the effectiveness of the newly developed vaccines. And most of the major vaccines in development at the moment focus in, in the spike protein. And mutations in the gene encoding for the spike protein could, of course, alter the structure, make some changes, and make um, and affect the effectiveness of the vaccines. And um, studies have been designed to explore the effectiveness of the existing vaccines against the new variant. And Pfizer and Moderna released preprints from their studies um, a few days ago, and uh, they showed that even though there's some reductions in neutralization, overall the antibodies produced by vaccines using Pfizer and Moderna are still able to neutralize the, the virus, the variants basically. And you know, just a couple of days ago, the EU was told by AstraZeneca, the Oxford vaccine as it's known, that there would be a delay in delivering the vaccine to Europe and I'm also hearing issues from friends and family in the States, in New York in particular, how difficult it is to book a vaccine. You know, what are the major reasons behind the failure to sort of deliver these vaccines on time? And is it, is it manufacturing? Is it logistics? Is it not having enough people to administer it? What's, what do you think is the issue here? So, so making vaccines is really complex. It requires the use of complex production methods, meticulous testing and, and quality controls in each step of the process. And because biological products in general, like vaccines, come from living systems, 
or, or, or they contain organic molecules, whereas small molecule pharma drugs come from chemicals that are much easier to combine. Um, vaccines are more difficult to make. And I've worked in the in the vaccine industry for over 10 years now, and I've never seen any company that produced vaccines without any issues in 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 one of the steps in, in vaccine manufacturing because it's, it's it's really complex right and last week Pfizer said that shipments were being held back by changes to its manufacturing processes designed to boost production so I guess that's the reason for Pfizer for AstraZeneca I'm not sure but I'm sure it's more of the testing or any of the many steps before they can release the vaccines hmm Interesting. Now, there's talk about the Johnson Johnson vaccine, and it seems they might be releasing their data for the vaccine trial soon. And from what I've heard, that's a one dose vaccine. I'm not sure if it requires cold storage, but if the data shows, you know, it has a high efficacy rate, say anywhere from 60 to 95 percent, should we be putting our hopes on that one? Is that the one that governments should be opting for? So I think governments should opt for whatever vaccine has been reviewed and approved by the national regulatory authorities. If we want to stop the pandemic, we need to scale up vaccination efforts now. If this vaccine from J&J has an efficacy similar to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine with uh, only one dose, surely it's a great addition to the COVID vaccine family. But realistically, it's not a matter of choosing one over the other because no single manufacturer can produce doses for the whole world. Right. Some will have to use vaccine A, some will have to use vaccine B, others will have to use vaccine C and so on and so forth. And, and every single day we wait for vaccine J to come into the picture is an opportunity for the virus to spread, an opportunity for the virus to mutate and create more variants. And as an example, the full effects of Pfizer's two dose vaccine um, are only expected to be seen in two weeks after the second dose. But recent data from Israel has already shown that there is a significant drop in infections even before this point. They have seen a 60% reduction in infections three weeks after the first doses were given. So I think we we have to roll out vaccines as, as early as possible and not wait for the perfect vaccine. I'm just curious, was that, which vaccine was that for that Israel was finding those results? Uh, it's Pfizer's, Pfizer BioNTech's Moderna okay. uh, mRNA vaccine. Okay, right. Interesting. Um, Let's say I have the choice to take the two-dose Chinese vaccine, which shows a 50% efficacy rate. What are your thoughts on that? And what does the data say? So, so I, I think we also have to clarify what this 50% means. So 50% vaccine efficacy for this specific vaccine uh, means that if you compare a person who has been vaccinated and a person who has not been vaccinated, the person who has been vaccinated has a 50% less risk of getting infection. And this is infection from, from COVID, right? This is not hospitalization or death. But if you look at the data from these Chinese vaccines, they actually prevent 100% of hospitalizations, severe COVID and death. So it's actually a good thing. Um, it's not 100% in preventing infection, but it's a, it's 100% in preventing hospitalization and death. So that's um, the answer to your first question. Um, I don't think we can mix and match these vaccines at the moment because we don't have data for that. I personally recommend people to take the second dose of, of the same vaccine they got for the first dose. Th that would be um, ideal. 
That's very interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of people have been asking, can you mix dose it? But it just seems obvious that that probably wouldn't be a good idea. I don't know. That's just me being <laughs> logical. But, you know, hey, it's good to just say that, <laughs> um, you know, because there's a lot of misinformation out there and confusion. And I just wonder from your perspective, what one misconception do you wish journalists or the general public, you know, better understood about vaccines and this virus? It's really about making sure that the public understands that adding all these public health measures together will reduce your risk significantly. You know, it's not about just a question of wearing the mask or taking the vaccine or doing physical distancing. It's all of them. Um, we do know physical distancing reduces the risk of transmitting the virus by at least 90% and wearing masks depending on the mask, of course, decreases the risk by 65 to 85%. And if you combine all of these um, public health measures, plus regular hand washing, plus cough etiquette, and having good ventilation indoors, transmission rates will definitely decrease. And But for me, there's one elephant in the room that nobody seems to be focusing on. It's the fact that people do not wear masks properly and people do not keep their distance. So, so in Germany, for example, some states have now ordered the wearing of the FFP2 masks for all citizens in, in shops, in public transports, in public places. Sure, it's a good thing. These masks are better in filtering particles, but nobody's focusing on the fact that people are removing their masks or letting their noses out all the time. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to think about the bigger picture. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's really just constant messaging of all these public health measures to be done together, because the more you do them, the, the more you reduce your risk of getting infected. When journalists are looking at vaccine data or reporting on it, just very simply, what should they be mindful of? You know, you're the vaccinologist. You should probably see a lot of stuff out there. You're on Twitter. You're pretty active. You know, who should they be interviewing? What advice should they be getting? I mean, I understand why everyone is, you know, saying things about COVID, right? The pandemic or the virus, because we are all affected and we are entitled to an opinion, right? But if people's opinions are not based on what they were trained to do or based on their experience, these opinions add to the confusion. And people who are not doctors or scientists might think that all doctors or scientists are COVID experts, but this is not the case. Um, for immune system questions, of course, you have to ask immunologists. For the virus itself, you have microbiologists and more specifically the virologists, right? For managing COVID, uh, you have to speak to infectious disease specialists. For questions on community transmission and public health advice, you have the epidemiologists and public health physicians. And it's also good to note that within ep epidemiology itself, there are specializations. And for COVID, we need to speak to those with infectious disease epidemiology expertise, because not all epidemiologists are the same. And what about vaccinologists like yourself? So vaccinology is a, a subspecialty of microbiology. Uh, it's a combination of immunology, microbiology, infectious diseases, public health, virology. So we, we're sort of, uh, we've, we've studied bits and pieces of these different uh, subspecialty of, of medicine. So we can understand what's happening and, and we can have a bigger picture of, of, of the vaccines, of the virus treatments and, and even public health. And I'm, I'm curious. So I know vaccinology has been around, obviously, since like the 1700s, I believe. 1700s, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
but how long have there been vaccinologists and who tends to hire you guys? Yeah, so I think in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, there were lots of practicing vaccinologists, but they never called themselves vaccinologists, right? They were called microbiologists and, and or immunologists in general. But I would say that around uh, the 1990s, the, the term started to um, appear, even mm. in, in publications. And at the moment, there are several... Um, training programs for vaccinology dedicated to vaccinology itself. So, for example, I finished my my postgraduate degree at the University of Siena in Italy, and there are programs in in France, in Canada, in the U.S. But um, there are not a lot of us at the moment. I think. Yeah, I had a hard time. Uh, like, I was just researching. I'm like, there just seems to be a shortage <laughs> of, <laughs> of of vaccinologists. And do you think that's going to change now with the pandemic? Can you see? I, I, I think so. I, I think there's been an increase in, in the interest of scientists in studying vaccinology, um, especially with regards to COVID. But I'm sure this will uh, continue even after the pandemic's over. Mm-hmm. And do you think it will be over? I mean, do you think we're just going to have a series of pandemics? I keep hearing this from other experts uh, making predictions. But again, I don't, I'm not sure if they were an expert per se, but from your perspective, do, what are you hopeful that we're going to, we're going to be able to stamp this out? So, um, yes, we will for sure. Right. Um, we've, I mean, we, when I speak, when I say we human, the human race, right. We, we've, we've weathered pandemics in the past and, and I'm sure we will also survive this pandemic, but it's a question of when we actually pull our acts together to, 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 to beat the pandemic. I hear you. Yeah. Um, and finally, um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the equality or the inequality rather of vaccine distribution. Why does that matter? And, you know, what is the solution to ensuring poor countries don't get left behind? So, so in global health, we have a saying, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And I think we've been he hearing um, Dr. Tedros from the WHO saying this over and over again. And, 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 this is, and he's actually correct here. We, we live in a tightly connected world more than ever. Our world is interconnected by global travel, which is much easier, faster, and cheaper than a decade ago. And um, because of that, it's, it's very easy for us and germs, pathogens to travel, right? because it's just so easy to travel nowadays. And um, I think um, we have to also remember that only when COVID vaccines are available to uh, high-risk populations in all the countries around the world will we be able to bring the pandemic under control. And we have this COVAX facility. It's one, one of the pillars of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Act Accelerator of the WHO. And it's working with in partnership with developed and developing country vaccine manufacturers with UNICEF, the World Bank and others to ensure that uh, COVID-19 vaccines, when they become available, they, they will be available worldwide to both higher income and lower income countries. And, and I think we are doing this because we don't want to repeat the, the mistakes we had during the the AIDS HIV AIDS pandemic in the 1980s, right? We had the drugs in the 1990s, but most of the drugs went to uh, developed countries first. And this also happened in the 2009 um, flu pandemic, where most of the vaccines developed during that time were um, delivered to developed countries. And 
the developing world had to wait for a year or more to get the vaccines. And I think this should not happen for the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations with Data. Uh, Melvin Sanikas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tara. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.